I'm hoping that we get back to that kind of spirit of diplomacy because we are literally at the brink of not being able to avoid two degrees centigrade more of global warming. And when that happens, I hate to say it, Dean, but life as we know it is going to be unimaginably horrible. Years since the roar of the first steam engine, we have become increasingly dependent on non-renewable sources of energy that spurred growth but also created the current climate crisis. Our generation stands at a crossroad. Faced with the monumental task of saving our planet, international cooperation on the issue of climate change is a necessity, and important issues remain to be solved. Today on our podcast, we will compare the Obama and Trump administration's climate policies, discuss the merits and shortcomings of the Paris Climate Accords, and talk about the growing role of Chinese leadership on this issue. Joining us today on this podcast to discuss global climate politics is Governor Peter Shumlin. Governor Shumlin was the 81st governor of the state of Vermont from 2011 to 2017. As governor, he pushed for aggressive action on climate change in his state and led the nation in reducing carbon and transitioning to renewable energy. He also attended the 2015 United Nations Climate Conference in Paris. Governor Shumlin is the longtime co-director of Putney Student Travel, a company that sends students on educational programs and service projects across the globe. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Governor. Um, I want to start the discussion by trekking back a few years um, to the Obama administration. So what did President Obama do on the global stage in terms of climate action? Well, you know, it was night and day from the Trump administration, obviously, because President Obama uh, and Michelle, you know, felt passionately about the biggest challenge that we're facing as human beings, which is ensuring that we have a livable planet for their kids and grandkids going forward. He had huge frustration dealing with climate change because, as everybody probably remembers, two years into his eight-year term, uh, the Republicans took over Congress. And the result was that he could get very little done that he really wanted to get done on a national level. So what it really meant was uh, he used all the power of the presidency, which there's plenty of without legislation, to bring world leaders together to try to create worldwide consensus that we've got to move. And that's really his greatest accomplishment was the Paris Climate Accord, because he could do that without uh, the help of Congress. But he was tremendously frustrated that he couldn't get more done. I'll never forget having the pleasure of having dinner next to him one night at the White House right after his second inaugural address. And I turned to him and I said, Mr. President, you know, thank you so much for mentioning climate change in your inaugural address. That was the first that's time that's happened in the history of American presidents. And he said, you know, Peter, uh, the frustrating part is, as you can imagine, they pull every single word I say in those speeches, and that's a flat line. But he said, I did it for the girls, and I'll continue to push as hard as I can. So I think the answer to your question is, he got a lot less done than he wanted to. He used the power of the presidency to bring together world leaders to try push an agenda that would help. But I think he left pretty frustrated. You brought up uh, the Paris Climate Accords, which, um, as you said, was an effort to bring in leaders from around the world to solve this um, the climate crisis. Can you talk more about what it was and kind of what the significance was in the Accords? Really, the significance of the core of the accord was, you know, it doesn't solve the climate problem. Let's be candid about that. What it did do is, for the first time in history, bring together leaders from every country in the world, 
to ensure that we agree that collectively we've got to reduce our carbon emissions so that sea levels don't rise at a level where, uh, you know, where we literally can't live in most of the cities in the world, where ice caps melt, where forest fires continue to ravage, and where we can't grow the world's food and end up in total destruction, not only for human beings, but every other living thing. So really the accomplishment of Paris, in my view, was not so much that it was a binding agreement, which we all wish it were stronger, including President Obama, but that we had world leaders together for the first time agreeing that this is the biggest challenge we're facing. We're all in this together, one globe, one planet, one community, and we have to reduce carbon with specific dates by which we need to reduce our carbon levels. I think that was the, the major accomplishment of that particular accord. I also wanted to touch upon um, kind of your course of action as the governor of Vermont. Um, you served as governor of Vermont from 2011 to 2017. Uh, what kind of action regarding climate um, did you take um, as the head of your state, as the chief executive of, of the state of Vermont? Well, you know, governors can do a lot. And I ran on a platform of creating jobs by moving away from our biggest power producer, which at that time in Vermont was an aging, leaking nuclear power plant, and moving to renewables, building out wind and solar uh, with a rational exuberance, uh, doing energy efficiency in ways that would really reduce the amount of uh, juice and power that we're using, uh, and try moving towards electrification of our, of our transportation systems in our small rural state. Uh, the result was, and we don't have time in this podcast to get too much into details, but I'd happy to, I'm happy to speak with anyone about what we did get done, is that Vermont in six years, so this is what I said when I ran, I said, listen, if we do all this, number one, we're going to create jobs. Remember, I was running for governor at the bottom of the recession. Every politician was running for office on jobs, didn't matter what party you were, because we were in a worldwide recession and a bad one. And I said, we're going to create jobs, uh, because whenever you move from one way of doing things to another, you create lots of jobs. I said, second, we're going to uh, ensure that we put money in Vermont's pockets because as you move, my view was that as you move from coal and oil, which in Vermont we import from countries, many of which don't like us much, uh, to solar and wind, it's cheaper. And for a lot of reasons that we, we don't have time to go into. And I said, third, you know, Vermont can be a small example of what we have to do as a nation to ensure that this world is is livable going forward, this planet. So anyway, at the end of the six years, after really major legislative initiatives and bringing utilities together and a lot of work, we became the number one solar state in America, as defined by the Union of Concerned Scientists for a year. We were either first or second competing for that place. We increased our solar uh, power by 11 times. We increased our wind power by 22 times. Our electric rates when I was governor uh, for four years, we either flat or actually went down. So you'd get your bill and it would be lower than the year before from our biggest utility, Green Mountain Power, which is 80% of the power of Vermonters. And more, most importantly, uh, we created thousands and thousands of jobs. In fact, when I was finished being governor, if you had, if you had uh, 17 Vermonters in a room, one of them was working in a renewable energy business. So we created lots of jobs. And the result was, uh, you know, we really moved the state forward in terms of reducing our carbon footprint. Now, are we done? By no means. But we made real progress. And the result was that when President Obama was going to Paris to try and promote the Paris Accord to countries that were developed, but also 
un, un, hadn't developed yet. And we're like, hey, you Americans, you know, you you spent the last 150 years burning coal and oil with irrational exuberance. Uh, now you run over here and tell us to stop. Uh, but you've now got the best prosperity, arguably, of any country in the world. So, you know, nice of you to show up. But uh, we'd kind of like some economic prosperity, too. And President Obama invited uh, three governors. Uh, I was lucky enough to be one of them. The other was Jerry Brown from California, who did a lot in California. Jay Inslee from Washington State, who's been a real leader on climate. And we went around and sort of said to world leaders, no, you know, just because the president can't get things through Congress, it doesn't mean we're not making progress. So, Vermont and Washington State and California became examples to people who were skeptical, leaders who were skeptical about the Paris Accord, uh, to go, hey, you know, these guys are actually doing something. As you mentioned, progress has been made over the years at the state, federal level with regards to climate change. But moving to a federal level, can you talk about the Trump's administration's climate change plan or lack thereof? (laughs) Well, I mean, everybody probably remembers that one of the first things that uh, President Trump and Vice President Pence did was to uh, back out of the climate accord. And, you know, we have the distinction as one of the biggest power users, in fact, the biggest power user in the world, of being the only country that's backed out of the accord. Now, I know that Vice President Biden or or President-elect Biden has a full intention to fix that in his first few days in office. But you know, the bottom line is uh, the, the Trump administration really successfully not only set us back in this country in terms of the race that we're in against the clock to actually ensure that the planet's livable going forward. We can debate whether we're going to be able to pull that off or not, but it's certainly uh, debatable as to whether it's too late or not. Uh, and secondly, uh, around the rest of the world, world leaders looked at us as some of the greatest hypocrites uh, that one could imagine, since everyone knows this is a pressing issue. It doesn't matter whether you're in a dictatorship, a democracy, or something in between. And they looked at us and said, you know, what's wrong with you in America? So it really did set us back in significant ways. Uh, I don't think, I personally don't, I'm an optimist. I personally don't believe that it's uh, irredeemable, but we have some very tough work to do to recover from the damage that's been done. So you talked about how other world leaders have viewed U.S. climate change under Trump. How would you describe the impact of the Trump's presidency to global action against climate change in the long term? I think it's recoverable. Let me tell you why. So many business people, scientists, good, hardworking Americans, you know, we, we, we remain the most... Uh, uh, ingenious country in the world in terms of being able to invent our way out of problems. We really do. That's one thing that America still holds. And just look at what's happening with the vaccine and COVID right now. You know, so much of it is coming out of research and development right here. Uh, We're good at innovating our way out of challenges. What's happened is that some of the business leaders of the world have come together, you know, Wall Street's now dumping money into this like mad, and figured out that you know, the combustion engine is over, that we're going to kill ourselves here if we continue on the path that we're on, and we're already seeing the destruction. And therefore, irrespective of government, free enterprise, capitalism, is seizing the opportunity to move forward. So I think the answer to the question is, is the damage done by losing the last four years irrevocable? No, it's not. Is it a huge problem? Absolutely. 
can we now remarry the force and power of the greatest government in the world with private enterprise to try and move much more quickly? Yes, we will. We have to, and it's going to happen. So I'm upbeat. How important is it then for states to lead action against climate change when the federal government fails to act as were actions taken at the state level with Washington, California, and Vermont? Super important, but the problem is that states on their own, you know, we need to have a coordinated, listen, we need to have a coordinated worldwide response because we all know we're living in the same planet. But when you start to say the leading energy user in the world is going to respond state by state, that's not good. We absolutely must have an aggressive, clear national policy that marries the good work being done by the private sector with government to push the envelope. And let's just play, let's get specific here for a minute. I know two of you are out in LA right now. Now I'm old enough so I can remember when you couldn't breathe the air in Los Angeles, you know, the, the smog and the fog, you know, it was just so bad that it was kind of like what you're seeing a lot of Chinese cities right now. It was a disaster. And what happened? You know, people finally said, listen, we're killing ourselves. You're trying to breathe the air in these cities. It wasn't just Los Angeles. Uh, what are we going to do about it? And government came together with private enterprise and with the automobile industry, and they came up with a catalytic converter. Now, the automobile industry just didn't just say, hey, we're going to be really good folks and good citizens now, and we're going to put a catalytic converter on every automobile. No, in fact, what they said is, if we have to do that, it's going to make our cars too expensive, what industry always says, and we're not going to do it. What happened? Government, Washington, came in and said, you shall not sell cars without catalytic converters in America after X date. And all the car companies embraced it because they had to. And away we went. So what I see as a future here is a beautiful partnership between federal government, not states, but federal government with the state supporting it, obviously, and private industry to solve this climate problem. And what do I think? I think it's not that hard. I think that's a really interesting point, Governor, especially because I'm taking a class right now called Capitalism and Ecology, and we're literally discussing these very issues that you're talking about um, with regards to the relationship between capitalism and our climate crisis. So I'm curious, what do you think, how how can we construct an economy and how can the federal government implement policies that encourage these private enterprises to implement these climate policies um, while still remaining economically competitive on the global stage or even domestically? This is what I would do if I were president of the United States. And I think you may well see uh, uh, President-elect Biden do some of this. If you, you know, when you, when you're a governor or a president, one thing that you learn is that you can't solve hundred percent of most problems. So you start to think differently about problem solving. At least I did. And I started saying, okay, when I've got something really big, like let's take climate change as an example, you know, what are the things that you have to do to solve most of the problem so that we can ensure that we have a livable planet for everything that's living? Kind of a big deal, right? And so I think these two things would get us out of this mess. I think that if the United States government, as they did with catalytic converters, picked a date, and President-elect Biden has talked about this, and said, by 2026, 20, you, know, you all pick the date. I mean, I, I, have got, I don't have the brains to do that, but let's have smart people figure out how we can really do this. We shall not sell combustion engines in America anymore, period, full stop. You know, imagine what that would do. Suddenly, you know, it's kind of ironic. About a year and a half ago, 
President Xi called um, when Trump was denying climate, getting out of Paris Climate Accord. He, you know, he called together the three leaders of big auto companies in America, General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler. And he said to those CEOs, listen, team, we like you selling cars in China, but we, we're very nearing the point where if you want to sell cars in China, they have to be electric. And you know what? And, you know, the Fords and all that, they're, they're all now sitting around there significantly investing billions of dollars to figure out how to catch up with Elon Musk. And you're starting to see the results. They're coming out with a Mustang that's electric. You know, they're doing all this stuff, trucks, all that. My point is, I think if the government simply said this, by a certain date, you got to sell, no, no more selling your combustion engines. And number two, to, so that's half, about half of the problem is our transportation systems. And I would say number two, to do what Vermont did, pass federal legislation that says, and this is what really drove us to solar and wind in Vermont, we passed legislation with a cooperation of the utilities, believe it or not, that simply said, if you put up solar on your roof, in your yard, in your field, wherever you want, or wind power, any excess power that you sell, that you make, that you don't use yourself, the utility shall pay you what you used to pay the utility. You know what happened? Even the skeptics on climate change say this is all humbo jumbo mumbo and garbage and garbage science and all. You know what they said? Hey, you know, but I thought we better put some solar panels up on the roof because we can make money on it. And everyone started doing it. It wasn't they all said, hey, the governor says we got a climate problem. We got to put solar panels. Let's be good citizens. It was driven by money, which is what drives most of what happens in America. So my point is, President of the United States says by a certain date, no more combustion engines. Number two, utilities for any renewable energy that is that is put up in America and you give tax credits to do that, uh, you will pay them what they used to pay you. It's net metering. It can be done. We do it here in Vermont. I think 90% of problems solved. You suddenly see America's emissions plummet because you're moving to renewables in your electric home grid use. And that would make a huge difference. So I want to touch upon something that you kind of talked about earlier, the fact that climate change is not just a local issue, right? It's not a state issue or a federal issue. It's all of those, but it's also a global issue, right? Like this isn't mm -hmm. something that affects everyone, no matter where you're living. Um, and so I want to ask, what does global cooperation on climate change look like? Um, obviously, we talked about Paris earlier, but what does what is kind of the framework when we think about how countries cooperate on the issue of climate change? I think it means a much more aggressive approach to sharing technology with countries that don't have it right now and finding ways to not only ensure that the developed world is moving to the kind of program I just talked about, but you know, one of the challenges of Paris was that developed countries that have not yet met great economic success were saying like, Okay, like what's in this for us? You know, and, and I tend to all, often have the question when we talk about this subject, you know, aren't you saying to countries that are struggling, hey, struggle some more because you've got to go to renewables? And my point is, no, actually, they have a huge economic advantage over us on this one. Because one of the things I found in Vermont when it came to the electric, electrification issue and, and solar and wind and other renewables, which are going to continue to develop is that 
a lot of the savings that we got, the reason our power rates went down, some of it came from the fact that I was right about it being cheaper to actually generate. But the second big one was we saved hundreds of millions of dollars not investing in upgrading a grid that takes electricity from coal plants in you know the Midwest somewhere and trucks it all the way to Vermont or suits it out to California, wherever it's going. So my point is simple. If you don't yet have a sophisticated electric grid, I think you have a huge advantage in moving to renewables because we're going to have major wars here, like fights like you've never seen before, as we move to local home generation of power, just as we have with the telephone, where the copper line becomes irrelevant, uh, about who the hell is going to pay for all the stranded costs of a grid that probably will not be necessary anymore. Poles and wires, sticks and lines running all over America that we, someone's got to pay for. And what I've said to the countries that are developing is, guess what? You don't have that burden. You can get this right the first time. So I think the role for world leaders is, how do we help each other to do this really quickly? And I think there's a lot of ways that we could be moving to help each other instead of fighting each other, which has been the basic theme of the Trump foreign policy. Yeah, I think this question of burden sharing is is super interesting. And that's one of the questions that I oftentimes think about when I'm thinking about global um, climate politics. So thank you for bringing that up. I wanted to bring up kind of another kind of critique of Paris, if you will, the fact that perhaps because it didn't have kind of straight along policies or straight along emission standards that people had to meet, but rather allowed countries to set their own, that perhaps Paris didn't have enough teeth or it wasn't um, as strong as people wanted to see in terms of um, global climate cooperation. Um, could you speak to maybe some of the critiques people had of Paris, um, or oh. do you see it as mostly a kind of first step in climate policy? Uh, it was a first step. There's just no question it doesn't have enough teeth. President Obama knew that. Everybody knew that when they went home. We got what we could get. I think what's significant about it is that it was the first time world leaders came together, agreed it's the biggest challenge we're facing and agreed that they want to help to fix it. What we didn't get was binding agreements on emission standards that we've all got to meet and we're running out of time. So is there a ton more work to do? You bet. Uh, did we hamper the ability to get that kind of work done over the last four years with climate deniers in Washington? Absolutely. Uh, does President-elect Biden have a huge opportunity right now, along with John Kerry and a lot of other people? You bet. But we've got, listen, we're out of time to talk. Anyone really wants to get worked up about this issue, wants to educate themselves, I urge you to read the, Par the, United, the United Nations Climate Report that came out about a year ago this year, this October. And, you know, it's a it's the basic, basic, biggest scientific study of scientific studies on climate ever done. And, you know, what it says is uh, we have run out of time. And if we're going to avoid the two degrees centigrade that we all know, we've already gone one. I mean, There's a crude, you know, summary of the report. We're, we're going to, unless right away, we can do the things that are often outlined in, in President Obama, in, in, in President-elect uh, Biden's uh, uh, platform on climate. But we got to get this done internationally. We're one community, one planet, and time is running out. So no, Paris was not strong enough. And I think everyone that was there would agree to that. 
China and the United States are the world's biggest emitter of carbon today. Looking forward to the coming years in terms of global climate action, do you see a place for Sino-American cooperation? I think the biggest, uh, I, I, I think the, what concerns me most about U.S.-China relations right now isn't so much the tariffs, isn't so much the business opportunities that are being lost, uh, isn't so much you know the stuff that the press writes about. It is this issue. One thing we had in Paris with President Xi was a willing leader who understood that because in his country, as a result of their huge economic development over the last 30 years, they can't breathe the air in the cities. They're having huge health issues. Uh, and, you know, he's building out wind turbines like no other leader in the world. When you, I spent a lot of time in China. You know, when you fly over China and you get a clear, and you're lucky enough to get a clear day from the smog, you know, you see wind turbines everywhere now and they're doing more of it. They'd love to do more solar, but it's hard to do in cities where the sun won't shine because the smog's so bad. So, you know, I think the biggest lost opportunity in the China-U.S. relations right now is in saving ourselves from ourselves in terms of the future of the livability of the planet. And I think that President-elect Biden has a true understanding of that. I One of the interesting meetings that I got to have as governor was when uh, President Xi was vice president. We all knew he was going to become president. And, 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 and Vice President Biden was vice president. And I got a call one day from the White House saying, will you go out to California, four governors from the U.S. And, and four from China and vice presidents and talk about the ways that America and China can improve relations. And I was like, Jesus, you know, it's a long flight from Vermont to L.A. And, you know, you got, it's not just a round trip. Governors are busy. I said, nah, I better go. And they said it was going to be an hour meeting. We went into a three-hour three meeting, no staff, no press, no notes, and had a fascinating conversation about all kinds of things that we could do that was led by Joe Biden, by the way, then he's very good at this kind of thing, where we really identified the things that were really holding back U.S.-China relations. And this was you know, how we could do better and how we could cooperate. I'm hoping that we get back to that kind of spirit of diplomacy, because we are literally at the brink of not being able to avoid two degrees centigrade more of global warming. And when that happens, I hate to say it, team, but life as we know it is going to be unimaginably horrid. We would like to close the podcast out looking to the future. What does the Biden climate change plan look like concretely? And what's the likelihood of this plan being achieved? Well, I mean, the main part of it is, you know, if you go look at the good thing to look at is go look at the platform. I, I had the privilege uh, at, at uh, the president-elect's request of being on the, on the uh, platform committee. And, you know, if you look at the platform, which is really what he wants to get done, they're talking about vastly expanding solar and wind, what Vermont did. They're talking about 500 million solar panels and 60,000 wind turbines by 2025. They're talking about zero net emissions, no later than 2050. They're talking about eliminating carbon from power plants by 2035. They're talking about the kind of local grid that I just talked about that we need to build to, to accomplish this. And they're talking about new energy building standards, whereby 2030, we'd have all buildings in America have to meet net zero emissions. So, I mean, those are just a few, and you can go look at it. There's a lot more there. But listen, these folks are serious. The question is, can they get it done? And 
you know, I mean, we all know that the, the roadblock to progress on this uh, has been a Republican Congress. We know that they feel very differently about this issue. I think we're going to move that forward, too. I just don't think that your generation is going to tolerate any elected officials who continue to be climate deniers. I just don't see that continuing. I mean, when I talk to young people, which I do all over the, you know, I go into schools, particularly high schools and middle schools, because I think that's where the action is right now. And, you know, talk to students that you all aren't disagreeing. You're like, we're scared to death. We can't get there fast enough. So I just think the days of, you know, older, uh, mostly white male politicians being able to stand in a way upon progress on this are coming to an end. The question is, will it come fast enough for Biden to be able to really get the work done? And we'll see. That's an open book, but let's all push for it. I guess our final question is, you just brought up the importance of younger generation being part of this dialogue. What is your message to people like us? What should we do? Anything and everything that you can think of, what we can't do is what my generation is doing, which is sitting on our hands. Listen, we're out of time. Uh, one of the things, you know, that I'll tell you a little story. So I, I, when I'm not in my non-governor life, I've always been one of the directors of Putney Student Travel. We send educational summer programs all over the world for middle and high school students and really change their lives. And we go out of climate-based programs in Iceland and other places all over the globe. But anyway, I've been I was doing some teaching down at the Harvard School of Public Health, which is in the in the uh, news a lot now because obviously they're often quoted on the COVID crisis. And I was talking to Gina McCarthy, who was President Obama's uh, incredibly capable direct administrator of the EPA. And when they were done, Harvard hired her to sort of oversee their climate work, both internally at Harvard and externally. It's called Sea Change Harvard. Anyway, we were talking, and and I said. You know, isn't it incredible that uh, Harvard uses all these great resources to uh, educate, you know, undergraduates in college, university students and graduate students, and all the actions coming from high school students and middle school students. I mean, they're walking out of school on Friday, which they were at that point. You know, Greta's coming over by ship, you know, to, 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 to pump people up. She's a high school student. And, and, and we got taught and we said, yeah. You know, and the Harvard School of Public Health started some summer programs that were supposed to go last summer. They're running this summer for middle and high school students. They're taking all of Harvard's resources and running climate and public health week sessions to help get students the tools they need, not to debate whether it's happening or not, but to be advocates for change and how you can make change in your local community. So that's, you know, you can find that by going to goputney.com and hit pre-college Harvard. And it's Harvard's program, but we're helping to run it. But anyway, my point is anything and everything that you can think of, but there's going to be a huge amount of money made as we transform from oil and coal to other ways of power in the future. Huge economic opportunity. And it's going to be where the heroes of the next generations are recognized for saving us from ourselves. So I say everything and anything that you can think of. But as students, you know, whether whether you're you're whether you're you know doing the work that you all are doing right now at Hopkins or whether you're anywhere else, ensure that you use some part of your life to get educated around issues that can help drive this agenda and help to drive it. Because man, we are running out of time and the stakes are even higher. You all are the first generation really of students on this planet who recognize that what you do in the next three and four and five years will impact the future of the planet forever. That's kind of a big one, but it's also a big opportunity.
Well, big burden, but I say big opportunity. Go for it. Well, thank you so much, Governor, for joining us today on uh, to discuss such an important issue. Well, listen, thanks so much for having me. And, you know, I'm, I'm an optimist. I think we're going to get this one right, but not without each and every one of you making sure that this becomes a part of your everyday life until we get it solved. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Department at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow our social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest Hopkins POFA updates. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.